A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Queen Victoria, who, in her time, was the longest reigning monarch in British history. She ruled the UK and the British Empire for over 60 years. Now, Victoria oversaw a period of great change throughout not just her realm, but but the, the wider world, uh, a period that, of course, these days we refer to as the Victorian era. And I'll tell you, this is not, it's not the only thing we've named after her either. Now, Victoria started off, uh, she had a very difficult childhood as a, as a young girl, and she took the throne at a very young age, but she grew to become a popular and, and successful queen who faced a huge number of challenges throughout her reign. And I'm not just talking about, you know, all, all of the political challenges that you would think would come with being a, the queen of a major European power in this point in history. She also had to weather personal tragedy as she ruled. And she didn't always handle this that well, as we'll talk about. And on top of this, she also just had a huge number of assassination attempts made against her life. And I don't really know why. I mean, on honestly, none of them were remotely successful as you might have guessed but for a popular and well-loved queen geez a bloody lot of people tried to kill her hey anyway the uk changed enormously throughout her reign uh she was there as a range of progressive uh social and political reforms went through and actually robbed her really as the monarch of power and instead empowered political institutions like the uk parliament and she sort of let this happen you know i'm not saying she was the driving force behind a lot of this but she certainly didn't stand in the way of progress and she was broadly speaking i think it's fair to say she was a reasonably progressive queen and she left the uk a better place than when she found it now look i'm not Certainly not trying to say she was perfect, far from it. We'll talk about that, of course. But her story is nonetheless a very interesting one indeed. And it's also, as you can imagine, quite a long one. There is a lot to get across today. Surprise, surprise. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get stuck straight in. Here we go with the story of Queen Victoria. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 24th of May, 1819. This was the date of Victoria's birth. Or, as she was known, I should say, before she took the throne, Alexandrina Victoria. She was named after her godfather, who's, who was uh, Tsar Alexander I of Russia. Now, you might think it's a bit weird for a British royal to have a Russian godfather, but I tell you what, you better strap yourself in because we, you know, we're going to try to unpick the tangled web of relationships across European royalty later on this episode, and it's only made all the more difficult by, by Victoria later on in life, as, as we'll see. Anyway, um, when she was born, right, she was, if you believe it, fifth in line to the throne with not only her dad but also his three older brothers ahead of her in the line of succession so on paper you're thinking the daughter of the fourth son of the reigning king no chance like you're not betting on her inheriting at all right but here's the thing her dad and all of these uncles that i've talked about they're all super old they're all they're all in their 50s and none of them have any other legitimate kids one of her uncles george had had a daughter but she died in 1817 two years before victoria was born and interestingly, her death, Charlotte's death, was actually one of the reasons that Victoria was born in the first place, because the reigning king, her grandpa, George III, he, he gets all his sons together because he's worried about the line of succession. He says to all his sons, now listen here, you useless blokes. I'll tell you what, I've had 15 bloody kids and not a single one of you has given me a proper heir. I know, yes, I know, George, you go, okay, sorry, very sorry about Charlotte. Very sad that she died, obviously. But what about the rest of you? I know the two oldest ones. I know bloody, you know, George and Frederick, you blokes are too old. You're estranged from your wives. You're probably not going to have any kids. What about you, William? What about you, Edward? What about you, Ernest Augustus? 
Still not quite sure why I called you that, but I'll tell you what, where are the kids, mate? Where are the heirs? I need you. I want some bloody grandkids and I want them yesterday because I'll tell you what, if anything's hap- if anything happens to all of you blokes, we're, we're going to be bloody bung out of luck. We've got no heirs left, right? So go and have some bloody kids. So this is exactly basically what happens, right? The responsibility falls to some of his younger kids. And when I say younger, they're still, you know, in their 40s and 50s, but still, you know, the responsibility falls to them. They're the ones who have to start doing all the hard yards, getting married, jumping into bed, shagging and, and having kids to make sure that George III and his line of succession can be assured. So this brings us to Prince Edward, the fourth son and the fifth child of uh, George III, who, as I say, had 15 children. He very dutifully gets married to and then starts rooting Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld, who is a German princess. She's already been widowed. Um, And it's not too long after this, in 1819, that we see the birth of young Victoria. Her dad's 52, her mum is 33. We'll come back to uh, some of the consequences of that in due course. But she's fifth in line, as I say, as she's born. Her grandpa, George III, currently on the throne. She's got her three older uncles and then her dad, Edward. However, what happens next, right, is Victoria actually ends up climbing the line of succession very quickly indeed. Let me tell you, I mean, actually, I don't know why I'm trying to build this up. I, don't, I mean, you obviously know she inherits. It's not going to be, it's, it, it's Queen Victoria. It's not going to be a twist when she actually ends up on the throne. So, yeah, she, yes, the line of succession changes very quickly. It shortens very swiftly as a bunch of people on it just die. First of all, very sadly, her dad in 1820, in January 1820, before Victoria had even turned one year old, her dad Edward died. And then a week later, her grandpa, George III, after almost 60 years on the throne, he also carks it. So she's now third in line after one week, right? She's third in line. Her uncle George becomes George IV. He'd been more or less running the kingdom as the regent since 1811 anyway. But then she was bumped back down into fourth uh, when her uncle William had another kid. But this child very sadly died in infancy, just 12 weeks old. And so Victoria was back to third uh, again before very long. Another uncle, Frederick, died in 1827. And then in 1830, George IV did the same, which means that her last remaining older uncle, William, he became king as William IV. Now, this makes her the heir presumptive. She's next in line to the throne, although she can be leapfrogged by any child from William. But William's in his mid-60s when he takes the throne. It doesn't look like it's going to change very much. It doesn't look like he's going to have any kids. And so she is in prime position to inherit. However, she's only 11 at this point, and her uncle William is determined to live long enough to make sure that there is no regency for Victoria, as this would end up with Victoria's mum, who was also called Victoria, although remember at this point Victoria goes by Alexandrina, right? It would end up with her mum as the Queen Regent, and William did not like this idea at all, and I'll tell you why. Let's talk about Victoria's actual childhood here. Victoria was raised under what her mum called the Kensington system, which amounted to what effectively I'm very happy to label as child abuse. Down to the smallest detail, young Victoria's life was completely controlled by her mum and her mum's rumoured lover, Sir John Conroy. Under the Kensington system, Victoria could never be apart from her mother or her governesses, and she was banned from meeting anyone, even other kids, right, who weren't directly approved, approved of by her mum or by Conroy. She had two friends growing up, total. Two other kids that she was allowed to play with, her half-sister from her mum's former marriage and Conroy's daughter. That was it. She wasn't allowed to meet with or play with other kids. And I mean, that's just the start. She was banned from seeing her dad's side of the family. She had rigorous daily lessons. Her mum would drill her on what she'd learned at the end of every single day, test her learning and her knowledge from the age of five years old. And then they be- the family barely left Kensington Palace. And when they did, it was for strictly controlled and, st- and stage-managed public appearances, which Victoria hated. They usually left her exhausted and sick. Not that, I mean, not that being sick mattered. Even when she was full of a fever, her mum and, and Conroy told her that she was malingering, told her to, forced her to get back to her studies and the like. And, and at one point when she was so, so unwell, she's delirious and fevering and whatever else like this, right? Her mum comes to her and attempts to persuade her to appoint Conroy as her private secretary, something that would be very difficult to undo once that bell had been rung. It'd be difficult for Victoria to unring it. But luckily for Victoria, she managed to see her way through this, 
forestall her mum's ambitious attempts to get Conroy further into the circle of power here, and luckily managed to preserve her future autonomy by resisting her mum's attempts to manipulate her. Now, what was the reason for all of this? Why was she being forced to share a bedroom with her mum for her entire childhood? So she never got a moment to herself, either asleep or awake, right? What was the reason for this? Well, her mum and John Conroy, they wanted to, they essentially wanted to make Victoria very weak and, and dependent on them, make her easy to control so that when she took the throne, they would be the ones in charge in reality. And this became very obvious when Victoria was a teenager, uh, when her mum was pressing her to appoint Conroy to her personal staff, when she was hoping that William would die so that she would end up as the regent for her teenage daughter. And I mean, as a result of this, Victoria just grew up just absolutely hating not just her mum, but also Conroy, that she couldn't stand either of them because she knew she was being treated miserably and cruelly. And I mean, her her uncle knew it too. William IV knew what Victoria's mum was like, knew how disastrous a regency would be with this controlling and ambitious and, and ruthless conniver as a queen regent. And so William... I mean, his solution to it was very simple, very elegant. He just refused to die. He just lived and lived and lived. He resolved to live until Victoria turned 18. And I tell you what, he stuck to his word because Victoria turned 18 on the 24th of May, 1837, and William died on the 20th of June, less than a month later. So he really was holding out to make sure his niece took the throne in her own right. Anyway, I'll tell you what. Victoria did not muck about after becoming queen. After such a cruel and terrible childhood at the hands of her mum and Sir John Conroy, the chickens, I tell you this, they all came home to roost very bloody quickly indeed. She immediately banned Conroy from her presence. Quite a fall from grace for him, although, I mean, most of the rest of the royal family already hated the bloke because of his naked ambition to put Victoria's mum on the throne as a regent. So he was banned. He's just banned from court. Can't be in Victoria's presence anymore. As for her mum, well, this is where it gets really interesting, right? Queen Victoria was the first British monarch to, uh, to live in Buckingham Palace. She was the first one to move in there and take up residence permanently. And under social convention at the time, as she was an unmarried young woman, never mind she's queen, she's still an unmarried young woman, she had to live with her mum. Even as the bloody queen of the United Kingdom, it was still inappropriate for her to live on her own. Absolutely ridiculous. But it did lead to a pretty amusing situation because her mum was now paid back for the years of misery she'd inflicted on Victoria as Victoria had her banished to a small isolated apartment on the other side of the palace and never visited her. So sucks to be you, I guess. Should have been nice of your daughter, mate, and not used her for political means to an end. Anyway, to begin with, after taking the throne at the age of just 18, a coronation came next year. Victoria was a very popular queen, and it has to be said, a pretty good one too. She used her inheritance and her government income to pay off her family's debts, and she ruled in close collaboration with the government of the day, led by uh, the Whig, or Liberal, Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. Now, Melbourne became something uh, something of a father figure, really, to young Victoria, who, don't forget, had lost her father well before she could remember him. Um, and Melbourne was a, a reasonably, you know, prominent politician of the day being Prime Minister to the point that in 1837, a small settlement on the banks of the Yarra River in Australia was named after him, my home city of Melbourne, now a city of five million, of course. Um, interestingly, uh, side note, before being officially named, Melbourne uh, had briefly, the city, not the not the guy, uh, Melbourne had briefly been called Batmania after its founder. I, don't know, I, might have met, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but it was John Batman who founded Melbourne, and uh, for, for a short while there, it was called Batmania. So in another world, I, as a, you know, as a Victorian from Melbourne, could have actually instead been an Alexandrinian from the city of Batmania, which would have just been a, a terrific time for everyone. Anyway, um, it's entirely fitting, though, really, when you look at it, that the close relationship uh, between Victoria and Lord Melbourne in the early stages of her career, uh, it's entirely fitting that the capital city of the state of Victoria, named after the Queen, of course, is Melbourne, um, although Victoria didn't become a state until 1851, so we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. But this relationship between Melbourne and Victoria sort of reflected geographically even on today's maps with uh, with the state of Victoria and its capital. Anyway, back in the late uh, back in the late 1830s and into the 1840s, Melbourne was of great help to young Victoria, teaching her about the the world of politics and governance. He was very influential on the young queen. They spent so much time together. There there were actually rumours that sprung up about the exact nature of their relationship. 
so much so that the Queen was mocked by some as Mrs. Melbourne. Uh, but again, it, it seems that his his role in her life was a paternal one. Again, she was lacking a strong father figure, and Melbourne kind of stepped in uh, to those shoes and, and helped her through the early stages of her of her queenship. Um, and she did have to weather a couple of scandals in her early years as well. She was in need of political guidance, for instance, uh, during the bedchamber crisis, which is actually a lot less interesting than it sounds. In 1839, uh, Lord Melbourne threatened to resign as Prime Minister. This is a very, very popular technique for Prime Ministers during the 19th century in Britain, threatening to, to resign. Very, very popular technique. And some of them actually ended up being called in their bluffs and had to do it, but it was a good way for a Prime Minister to try to get what he wanted there. Anyway, he threatened to resign when his political rivals, the Conservative Tories, who Victoria rightly despised, refused to aid him in disempowering slave owners in Jamaica. Uh, the Tories sought to take power after this threat of resignation with a bloke called Robert Peel making moves to form a government. But uh, as at this stage in her career as Queen Victoria hated the Tories, good on you, Victoria. I mean, that will change ultimately, but I mean, that's what you, they say, right? You become more conservative as you get older. Um, uh, she refused to adhere to a long standing political convention. Tradition held that the Prime Minister of the day appointed the members of the royal household, including the Queen's ladies of the bedchamber. Usually, these were made up of the wives of prominent government officials. Well, Victoria didn't want a bunch of Tory wives as her ladies-in-waiting, and so she refused the idea of Robert Peel uh, playing around with the members of the royal household. And as a result, Peel refused to form government. This whole situation actually worked out very well for Lord Melbourne and uh, perhaps it was a clever bit of politicking on his behalf because what happened, I mean, when when Peel, you know, ended up being so outraged by the Queen's refusal that he, refu- that he refused to form a government himself, Melbourne's political stocks were strengthened because the Tories appeared weak and petty and unable to take government. Never mind that it was him, Melbourne, who was advising Victoria not to accept Peel's terms and not to accept him appointing, uh, uh, you know, all of these ladies to the bedchamber, whatever else. Melbourne came off very, very well indeed because the Tories seemed fractured and weak and unable to govern. And Melbourne returned to government revitalised, rejuvenated, seeming like a, uh, a you know, a, a much stronger PM than his, uh, his rival would be. However, Overall, the real loser here wasn't Peel, it was actually Victoria. She was only 19 years of age and the crisis didn't reflect well on her. It made her seem headstrong and stubborn and obnoxious. And uh, it also really highlighted the fact that she was far too fond of Melbourne and the Whigs. Nonetheless, Melbourne continued to govern until 1841 when Robert Peel finally did win an election in his own right and... This time, Victoria did allow Robert Peel to uh, to make changes to the royal household, and she did it did end up with some Tory wives as her uh, as her ladies in waiting. And, and in later years, she would admit that she handled this crisis very poorly. It reflected badly on her as a young queen. But by the time this happens, by the time Peel takes takes office in eighteen forty one, Melbourne is already very well and truly going to be sidelined here for, for a different reason altogether. Um, Mel, I mean, he's lost office, sure, he's not the Prime Minister anymore, but there was something else that came along that meant that she had a new confidant, a new advisor, and it wasn't Robert Peel either. Let me tell you what happened. The only way that Victoria could get her mum out of Buckingham Palace once and for all was to get married. And this was something that Lord Melbourne was very strongly in favour of, and so he sort of was the architect of his own demise here. Victoria wasn't in the greatest hurry to get married. She, she wasn't racing into it. But her uncle on her mum's side, King Leopold I of Belgium, had suggested that she marry his nephew, a bloke named Albert, whose dad was a German duke. Now, they met in, uh, in 1836, and they seemed to get along very well, but at least publicly, Victoria was playing a cool hand. She wasn't rushing into anything, and uh, even after she took the throne, she didn't seem to be in, in a huge hurry to get married. However, her diary reveals a very different story. It reveals that she was head over heels about this bloke, Albert, uh, but again, played it very cool. Other princes and whatnot are all paraded in front of her over the years. She considers them here and there and whatever, but... Her mind seems to have been made up about Albert from the get-go. And when he came and visited her again in 1839, she just went ahead and proposed to him. He accepted. They were married the next year in 1840. And as you might know, Victoria absolutely loved this bloke. Till death did them part. I mean, have a listen to some of the stuff that she wrote about him in his diary. Have a listen to this. 
My dearest, dearest, dear Albert, his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness. Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? So, I mean, she was keen as eggs on this bloke and they had a very, very happy marriage. Um, I mean, maybe partly because of the fact that she was now able to boot her mum out of Buckingham Palace and she wasted no time in doing just that. See you later, old lady. Um, and, and because of this marriage, Lord Melbourne slowly faded from the scene as he lost not only government, but also his position as uh, as Victoria's sort of chief advisor. Uh, he, his attention was you know, very quickly replaced by Albert. He became, uh, Albert became her closest advisor and confident, as you'd expect. And, and also, as you'd expect, it wasn't long before she was pregnant as well with a daughter who was named, can you guess, Victoria. Yes, that's three Victorias in a row. The two has, a, as I say, had a very, had, a, had an absolutely blissful marriage. They never seemed to be anything other than happy together. Um, and despite Victoria's personal dislike of pregnancy and childbirth, the two of them had nine children together, including the future King Edward VII. Um, to help her through later childbirths, uh, Victoria gave birth to her last two children with the aid of a brand new anaesthetic called chloroform, which put her offside with a lot of people, uh, particularly priests who decided that this was against Christian teachings. I mean, that's priests for you. They're always at the cutting edge of scientific progress they are in all seriousness they are always at the edge of scientific cutting edge of scientific process they're always there telling everyone to turn around and and, and go backwards anyway victoria had a lot of kids despite not really enjoying the whole process as i say and all nine of these kids were married off to other noble and royal families throughout europe and this of course led to her lineage becoming inexorably linked throughout houses and dynasties across the entire continent she had 42 grandchildren and 87 great-grandchildren and even today i mean if you want to if you want a, a you know a very real and modern and tangible indication of victoria's influence as, as the sort of matriarch of many of the royal families of europe today king harold v of norway king marguerite the second of denmark king carl the 16th gustav of sweden and king felipe the sixth of spain are all her descendants so that's Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Spain, and of course, Queen Elizabeth in the UK, not to mention Russia, Germany, Greece, Romania, and Yugoslavia's last monarchs were all the descendants of Queen Victoria before those respective monarchies were ultimately abolished. So not a bad run there, even if she did inadvertently fill a bunch of those family trees with congenital haemophilia. Oops, yes. Uh, one more thing while we're talking about her kids. Victoria was responsible for bringing congenital haemophilia to many of the royal families throughout Europe. She was uh, she probably became a carrier of the disease because her dad was so old when she was conceived. Haemophilia can be the result of pregnancies with older dads. Um, and she gave it to a bunch of her kids. Royal haemophilia, as it's sometimes called. It, it spread throughout family trees in Europe and it, it ended up affecting one of her great-grandsons who we've actually talked about on the podcast before in episodes 126, 132, Get Across, and we talked about Rasputin, the faith healer who the Russian imperial family used to treat the, the sickly Alexei Nikolaevich, the, the last Tsarevich. And you might remember what Alexei had. He had haemophilia and one of his great grandmothers was none other than queen victoria so that's the reason that rasputin rose to prominence it's because he's because alexei's great grandma was born to a 52 year old father so that's that anyway quite aside from having a bunch of kids which is obviously you know very important job for any successful monarch victoria continued in her role as queen and remained reasonably popular as the years continued and you know to give her a bit of credit she was a, a a relatively forward-thinking monarch for the most part. She supported progressive reforms like the repealing of the Corn Laws. Um, the Corn Laws were... The corn, at this point, is talking about all different types of grain, not just specifically corn. Um, it was a protectionist policy that basically was designed to make sure that all of the grain that people were buying was, was grown in Britain to protect British industries. And it was terrible for poor people because it just drove the price of grain up because they couldn't use cheap imports to bring it down, which meant that 
people in poverty found it hard to put enough food on the table. And so her supporting the repealing of these laws was was very, very good uh, for those who were poor or impoverished. It helped her popularity. I mean, you know, it wasn't popular with the, the toffs at the top end of town who stood to earn a lot of money off of, you know, their uh, their their farms and whatever else in the UK. But it uh, it definitely uh, forwarded her position amongst the the working classes. Um, but interestingly, even you know, despite this popularity, and also in in a weird way, in this actually supported her popular, made her even more popular. She had to deal with a bunch of assassination attempts, as, as I mentioned earlier in the intro. Um, there were a lot of would-be assassins that came after Queen Victoria. The first of them was in 1840, a bloke named Edward Oxford. He shot at Victoria and Albert as they were riding about in an open carriage. Now, he missed both times, um, or the, the two guns that he had may not have even been loaded with bullets, uh, but they both went off and you know made a great big bang. And he was, I mean, he was arrested straight away and immediately and very enthusiastically confessed. Um, he was quite worried that he'd hurt the Queen afterwards in the in the interviews that were conducted with him after he'd done this, he was like, oh, is she hurt? Is she okay? It's like, mate, you tried to shoot her. What do you mean, is she okay? Now, luckily, obviously, she was fine. But he, he talked about how he did it for notoriety. You know, this he was seeking her, herostratic fame. And, uh, I mean, ultimately got it. We've, we've just named him. So, Edward Oxford, there you go. Um, but he was found not guilty. Uh, not because he didn't do it. He did do it. He confessed to it. But not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, he was sent to an asylum and spent many, many years there before ultimately being released. He was a model patient. They ultimately decided he wasn't a threat to society and they released him on the condition that, however, he was given he was given a choice. Basically, he was, uh, he was, said, it was said to him, mate, you can stay in prison for either the rest of your life, you want to stay here in, in the UK, or we'll send you into exile, essentially, we'll send you to Australia. Not as a convict or anything, but just you have to go to the other side of the world. And the guy's like, all right, I'll, I guess I'll go to Australia. Please, no, don't send me to Australia. Like, they just want to get rid of him. And it worked for him because, yeah, he was sent to Australia, lived there in, in funnily enough, in Melbourne, Victoria, until he died in 1900. So, uh, so he, he got away with it, I guess. Um, but then in 1842, again, she's in her carriage driving about London, and there was a bloke whose name was John Francis. He aimed a pistol at her, although it didn't fire. Uh, she sped off in the carriage and he ran away. He got away with it, right? However, Victoria was determined to catch this bloke. So she hatched a plan and a pretty gutsy plan as well that she came up with. Listen to this, right? The next day, Victoria got back in her carriage and if you'll believe it, she rode her carriage, she drove in her carriage along the same route, hoping that this bloke would come out, try it again, repeat his attempt. I mean, very gutsy thing to do, putting herself at risk, but it worked. This time, Francis did manage to get a shot off. It missed. Um, and he was quickly arrested because, of course, the streets now were lined with plainclothes cops who had been planted there specifically to try to catch this bloke. They'd been put there specially. And, of course, he was immediately arrested. And he was sentenced to a terrible fate. The worst fate imaginable. I shudder to think of it. He was, tra- he was sentenced to transportation for life. To Australia. Sorry, wait. Hang on one second. It's me. Oh, I said worst, didn't I? No, no, no. I meant best. Free lifetime trip to Australia, mate. What could be better? Don't even worry. Actually, I mean, maybe I shouldn't joke about it because, like, being a convict sent to Australia was actually not very much fun, poor bastard. But that was what happened to him. Sent over Australia, transportation for life. And just a few days after he was sentenced to transportation, another bloke, John William Bean, maybe he wanted a free, free trip to Australia as well because he took a pot shot at Victoria, although he didn't load his gun with bullets. He loaded it with... Tobacco, of all things, I don't know. He shot some tobacco in the direction of the Queen. He didn't get sent to Australia, though. He, <laughs> I don't know if that was his plan all along, but instead he got locked up in prison for 18 months. There was another fellow, however, uh, William, William Hamilton in 1849. He fired an empty gun at Victoria, and he was sent to Australia for it, as was another fella in 1850, this bloke, Robert Pate. He attacked Victoria with a cane. Uh, he approached with a cane, gave her a bonk on the head, and was sent off to Australia. Both of these, uh, both these two blokes, uh, sent to Australia transport uh, transportation for seven years. So, um, look, I don't know if that offer is still on the table. You know, whack the queen on the noggin, get a free trip to Australia. I, I do not recommend that you test that theory for yourself for what it's worth. But uh, there were certainly a couple of blokes who uh, who got a one way ticket to the other side of the world uh, after a, uh, either you know actually assaulting the queen or, or or attempting to anyway. 
But it wasn't just assassination attempts that she had to deal with throughout this period in her reign. No, Uh, in 1845, of course, the potato blight in Ireland caused a devastating and widespread famine. And at this point in its history, the Irish were under the British yoke. They were part of the British Empire, part of the United Kingdom, I guess, not even really the British Empire. So there, there was no Irish free state. There was no Irish autonomy here. Now, there's a story that goes around about how Victoria responded to the potato blight and the famine by donate, donating five pounds to the relief effort. And on the same day, she donated another five pounds to an animal shelter. Now, you know, as fashionably cruel and callous as that makes a, a British monarch seem when it comes to the Irish, and certainly, you know, British monarchs, there's no, no end of, to their cruelty and callousness when it comes to the, dealing with the Irish. This isn't true. Uh, she didn't donate five dollars. She donated or five pounds. She donated two thousand, which is a considerable sum more, six figures in today's uh, in today's money. So she did put a fair bit of her own money towards the uh, uh, the relief effort in Ireland. Not that it did any good at all. I mean, a million people died in Ireland. Two million more became refugees. And even today, this is an incredible fact. Even today. The island of Ireland's population still hasn't recovered to its pre-famine levels. She did attempt, Victoria did attempt to uh, improve the standing and the reputation of the British royal family in Ireland. She made an official visit in 1849, although again, just like her donation, hardly did anything, mate. I mean, the Irish, they're not about to forgive hundreds of years of oppression because of one state visit, are they? No, anyway. Despite her diplomatic efforts in Ireland not coming to much, her diplomatic efforts abroad, um, internationally, on the international front, much more fruitful. Victoria pioneered a new level of friendship between the United Kingdom and France. Now, we've often talked about how the national historical pastimes of these two nations seems to be fighting wars against each other. They spent a good part of the second millennium fighting each other. And as I've said before, it is most unjust that France has sort of ended up with a reputation with a reputation for being bad at war because they're just not, especially when it comes to fighting the English. When it comes to major military conflicts since the Norman Conquest, um, and if we count English wins on the British side of the ledger, the final score between the UK and France uh, since 1066, and we're not we're not including the Norman Conquest because they were Normans, although technically the Normans were vassals of France. So look, we're just not including that one. It's a bit, it's a bit, bit of muddied water there. But the total score since 1066 in the end of the Norman Conquest, right? Seven draws, so or inconclusive results that didn't really change too much, sure. Twelve wins to either England, Britain, or the UK, depending on which point in history we're talking about. Twelve wins. 25 to France. So the French are, historically speaking, not just exceedingly good at war, but about twice as good as the English and the British when it comes to fighting each other. Anyway, you might have noticed that in more recent centuries, since 1815, um, France and the United Kingdom haven't been in direct military conflict since the Battle of Waterloo. Um, And Victoria is one of the reasons for that new post-Napoleonic friendship between the UK and France. In 1843, she and Albert visited France and met with the French king, Louis-Philippe I, in Normandy. And this was the first time since the reign of Henry VIII, first time in over 300 years, that a British or English monarch had met a French monarch face to face. I mean, as I say, the last time had been Henry VIII, so back in the 16th century. Louis-Philippe also became the first French monarch ever to visit England when he went over in 1844. And the two royal, the two royal families, they brought the nations closer together than they'd been in I mean, ever, really, essentially ever. And this continued after the Second French Republic and into the Second French Empire as the UK and France became firmer allies than ever before, especially in the wake of the Crimean War, um, with the French Emperor Emperor Napoleon III both visiting Victoria in the UK and receiving her as a guest as well. So, look, the UK-France relationship is very complicated. um, And in recent years, it has taken a bit of a diplomatic battering. But the, the fact that these two countries are still friends and allies... Uh, on the whole, anyway, it can be, at least in part, traced back to the sort of diplomatic reset that Victoria uh, undertook or helped to uh, establish in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. You know, certainly there were a lot of other people, a lot of other factors involved in in turning that relationship around. But Victoria, she grabbed the opportunity with both hands to reverse the uh, the historical bent of the, uh, the British-French relationship. And it is what it is today in at least some part due to her efforts. Anyway. As we move into the 1860s, 
the successes of Victoria's reign are overshadowed at this point by the tragedies that struck her. In March 1861, her mother died, and she was actually more upset by this than you might imagine. Now, Albert had been something of a mediator between the two women and had had helped to reconcile them uh, quite significantly, really, slowly, slowly but steadily. But by the end of it, especially once sort of grandkids started turning up uh, for Victoria's mum, the two of them reconciled. And, and I don't think they were ever really close again, but certainly they were friendlier uh, than, you know, they'd ever been before. Um, and so Victoria was greatly saddened by the loss of her mother. And after reading through a bunch of her mum's uh, sort of private correspondence and, and other letters and diary entries, whatever else that she'd written, she realised that, oh, I don't know if this is actually true, but she came to the conclusion, at least, that Sir John Conroy had been the the one who had sort of poisoned her mother against her and planted the seeds of ambition and ruthlessness in her heart. And again, whether that's just Victoria finding excuses for her mum or not, I don't know. But certainly Victoria was heartbroken when her mum died. But that was nothing, absolutely nothing, however, in comparison to how Victoria was affected by the loss of, of course, Albert, who died in that same year in 1861. Now, while Victoria was mourning her mum, Albert actually took on most of Victoria's duties despite being unwell himself. And this made his health a lot worse and so bad, in fact, that ultimately he was diagnosed with typhoid fever, which killed him in December 1861. And from that moment on, Victoria's reign changed drastically. Utterly distraught by the loss of her beloved husband, she wore black for the rest of her life and largely withdrew from the public uh, public eye. She still carried out all of her official duties, and as time went on, she became a little more involved in politics. For, for instance, in 1867, she threw her support behind the Reform Act, another progressive act which expanded voting rights enormously by allowing many working men to vote rather than just the, the very wealthy. And obviously, you know, a very important step along the road to universal suffrage. But interestingly, Victoria personally opposed women being allowed to vote. The suffragist movement did not find an ally in Queen Victoria, and she was quite happy to completely ignore any and all uh, notions of extending the franchise to women. But ultimately, despite her occasional involvement in politics, she did become a bit of a recluse. Um, And during her time in seclusion, she grew close to a manservant whose name was John Brown. Now, these two became that close that, again, uh, rumours of a love affair began to swirl. And we don't know if it's true or not. Certainly, the closeness of these two ruffled more than a few feathers. The rest of the royal family did not like how much influence Brown seemed to have had over Victoria. Um, she commissioned a portrait of him, gave him medals, and tended to listen to his counsel very strongly. It seemed like Victoria did, at, at most points in her life, enjoy having a, a confident, a, a close friend, you know, and a, a, a very close and trusted advisor like Brown had been, Albert before him, Melbourne before him. Um, and, and she was such a big fan of Brown that, I mean, when he died in 1883, Victoria began to write a eulogistic biography of him, uh, which was diplomatically shut down by other advisors uh, who were worried it would only add fuel to the, the fire of the you know, rumours of an affair. And uh, the manuscript was destroyed. So we don't know what she wrote, <laughs> what she wrote about the bloke. But look, ultimately, the Queen's seclusion really wasn't good for the British monarchy. An absent queen strengthened the growing republican movement in the country. In 1870, the Third French Republic was proclaimed, uh, and republican sentiment rose in the UK as a result. There were public calls for the abolition of the monarchy. These people became more and more vocal uh, about about removing Victoria. But then... Victoria received some help from an unexpected and probably quite unwelcome quarter because both she and her son, the heir, um, Albert Edward, the future Edward VII, both of them fell ill quite badly. I mean, Edward contracted typhoid fever just like his old man, the thing that had killed Albert. Now, this outpouring of sympathy and concern for these uh, for these sick royals, it washed away much of the Republican momentum. People were concerned for Victoria, who still, you know, she engendered a lot of sympathy in people's minds. I mean, she lost her mum, she lost her husband, very, very sad indeed, and now she's sick herself. So a lot of people sort of came back to uh, recognising Victoria's place as their queen and, and, and came back to you know liking her again, essentially. And when both she and Edward recovered, the celebrations and the parades and all the rest of that were, that were put on, they helped to regain her 
yet more popularity and sort of harnessed that sympathy and turned it into positive feelings. And this was just in time, by the way, for yet another assassination attempt. Well, I mean, sort of at least. Uh, a 17-year-old kid named Arthur O'Connor waved a pistol at her as she was returning to Buckingham Palace one day in 1872. Now, this pistol wasn't loaded, but that didn't stop poor O'Connor getting a year in prison and a thrashing with a birch rod as punishment. And I, I forgot to mention this earlier about the assassination attempts, actually. The weird thing about all these assassination attempts is that they bolstered Victoria's popularity enormously. Um, whenever there was this a would-be assassin who would make an attempt on Victoria's life, it again engendered public sympathy. It made people, I don't know, protective of their of their queen, and it helped to strengthen public support for Victoria. So, look, I don't know. Maybe it was an inside job. Maybe whenever her public support was flagging, she's like, "All right, just pay some poor Irishman to wave a pistol at me, and we'll chuck him in prison for a year and give him give him a thrashing. That'll do it." Anyway, as we move into the latter part of Victoria's reign, I'm very sorry to say that there was a renewed focus on British colonialism. This wasn't something new in British history. I mean, British colonialism had been a, a massive part of the nation's uh, rise to becoming a great power throughout the entire world. The British, I mean, it was the, it was the British Empire. It, is, it was an imperialist nation. Um, but... This came into, as I say, a renewed focus in, in the later parts of her reign. She was crowned Empress of India in 1877, and she strongly supported Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli's plans for British expansion into Africa. Now, Disraeli, who was a Tory, he was a real charmer, um, and just as Melbourne had won, her, had won her over all those years ago, Disraeli, too, got in the good books of Queen Victoria, uh, and it was he who had the British Parliament approve her as the Empress of India, um, and this is what he said when speaking about his approach to dealing with Victoria. This is how he uh, this is how he sort of approached dealing with the with the Queen. He said, <clears throat> "Everyone likes flattery, and when you come to royalty, you should lay it on with a trowel." And it certainly worked because Disraeli quickly became Queen Victoria's favourite, and the and the two worked closely until his electoral defeat in eighteen eighty. And the Queen confessed to have wept openly when he died the following year. Speaking of death. Victoria had one more brush with death in 1882. Another assassination attempt at a bloke named Robert McLean shot at her while she was on a train. Now, none of these blokes seem to have been a very good shot. or I mean, no, half of them didn't load their guns to begin with, but McLean missed, of course, and he was beaten up by two students with their, with their umbrellas before he was arrested and taken away. And Victoria wasn't pleased uh, when he, like Edward Oxford before him, wasn't pleased when he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, although she did say that the outpouring of sympathy uh, for her in the wake of this assassination was <clears throat> worth being shot at to see how much one is loved. But the later parts of Victoria's reign were unremarkable from her perspective as she took a, a diminished role in the political day-to-day -day activities of the United Kingdom. And part of this was, of course, her seclusion, her withdrawal from public affairs and all the rest of it. But part of it was her, her readiness and willingness to devolve power away from the monarchy and to the parliament, to the people. She was, as I say, despite cozying up with the Tory prime minister towards the end of her reign, she was a, a reasonably forward-thinking monarch and someone who helped to shape the constitutional monarchy that the UK still is today. And um, as her career continued, as her reign continued, she remained reasonably popular. In 1887, she celebrated her golden jubilee, 50 years on the throne. And once again, her popularity was just, just through the roof. And in the, in the eyes of her, of her adoring public, she could do very little wrong. And so much so that in, not long after her golden jubilee, she took a new manservant, someone, you know, the, someone who was now replacing John Brown. And this bloke, his name was Abdul Karim, and he was an Indian Muslim. And this shocked and scandalized the British upper classes. They couldn't believe that she was letting, you know, a, a foreigner like this come into her inner circle. But Victoria, again, could be reasonably forward-thinking at times, and she ignored all of their complaints, and she dismissed them as racial prejudice. So, an interesting turn of events for the woman who is ostensibly in charge of the largest imperial regime that, the, that, the, that history has ever seen, really. Um, but she did seem to have a bit of a progressive bent to her, like the next year in, in 1888, when her grandson, William Wilhelm II, became the emperor, or Kaiser, I guess, of Germany. You might remember him from episode 27, Get Across It. Now, Victoria loved her little grandson, even though he was an absolute terror when he was a kid. But as he grew up and 
when he didn't really change and was just an, a, as objectionable and, and as difficult to deal with as an adult, Victoria became a lot more disappointed in her grandson and, and was, was saddened to see him drag Germany further into autocracy rather than liberalising his nation further, like just, just as she had done with the UK. But as we move into the 1890s, Victoria, who's now in her 70s, she became closer every day to, I mean, I guess this happened throughout her entire reign, not just in the 1890s, but as she got actual quite close to it, it became more, more relevant. She, became, she got closer to surpassing her grandfather's record-length reign, and she ultimately did surpass it in 1896 when she became the longest reigning monarch in British history. Now, she did delay celebrations of this milestone until the next year in 1897, which, of course, is her diamond jubilee, 60 years on the throne. And the crowds that attended the celebration for a diamond jubilee were enormous. The Republican sentiment of the 1870s completely forgotten. Victoria was as popular as ever. However, her health was failing by this stage. She'd fallen down some stairs in the years beforehand. By 1900, she couldn't really use her legs anymore. She was more or less completely disabled physically. Um, and sadly, to her eyes were becoming cloudy with cataracts. By the end of the year, her health was, was worse than ever. And ultimately, because of this failing health in her old age, Queen Victoria died on the 22nd of January 1901 at the age of 81 in the company of both her son, who became Edward VII, and her grandson, Kaiser Wilhelm II. And it was finally at her funeral that she stopped wearing black. At her own request in plans that she'd made for her funeral, Victoria was dressed all in white and she was buried with one of Albert's dressing gowns in her casket, as well as, I might add, a lock of John Brown's hair, although that was hidden under some flowers, so even her family wouldn't notice it there. But in death, she was the longest reigning British monarch in history and the longest reigning queen in world history. Until, that is, of course, her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, overtook her on both counts just seven years ago, on the 9th of September 2015. But what's Victoria's actual legacy, other than, you know, just being a queen what didn't die for a long time? Well, and, and this is particularly true of the, the later stages of her career as queen. Queen Victoria wasn't enormously active didn't play an enormously active role in, in the day-to-day politics of the British Empire, but she nonetheless helped to shape the role of a modern constitutional monarchy within the United Kingdom. And in the years went on, uh, as her involvement in politics went from advisory to symbolic, she still oversaw reforms that took power from the monarchy and the nobility and instead invested it in the parliament, and particularly in the lower house, in the House of Commons. And more broadly, her longevity and the stability that that brought to the UK meant that slow and steady political reform was made possible because there wasn't the turbulence and the volatility of monarchs coming and going like it was a revolving door. So the country ended up being a very different place at the end of her reign compared to the beginning, if only because of the stability that her long reign, long reign brought and, and the opportunity it gave for far-reaching reform to as I say, slowly but steadily take hold. And if we zoom out even further, I mean, her name is, well, her name's given to a lot of things, two states in Australia, but her name is given to an entire cultural era that had a huge impact on not just British history or European history, but world affairs. I mean, we've all heard of the Victorian era. Romanticism flourished in culture and the arts. Medicine and science modernised and broke with traditionalist approaches. Industrialisation spread spread throughout the UK and beyond. And populations within the United Kingdom, outside of Ireland's of course, boomed. People were better fed, better educated and more prosperous than ever before, in, in most places at least. And how much of that is down to Queen Victoria herself? I mean, look, that remains up for debate. But the political and the social reforms that took place under her reign were instrumental in shifting the makeup of the British populations, as well as the populations ruled by the British Empire, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. These all developed greater political autonomy due to the political liberalisation of the Victorian period. And despite her popularity throughout the empire, I mean, as I say, Australia has two states named after her, these colonies would all go on to become autonomous nations. 
The UK went pretty hard on its colonialist efforts under Victoria, particularly in Asia and Africa. I'm not attempting to minimise or diminish the, the impact of colonial Britain. But under Victoria, the UK also avoided major conflict with any other major power, except, of course, for the Crimean War in the 1850s. And so her reign was a relatively peaceful one in many respects. So what is her legacy? Reasonably positive, it has to be said, if only because she was able to relinquish power and delegate it to Parliament and get on board with these social and political reforms as they arose, or some of them at least. And look, I'm the furthest thing that there is from a royalist. My admiration for any modern monarch is strongly limited by their general uselessness. But I do recognise the only reason that we got to a point where the general uselessness of monarchs can be widely observed and, and, and acknowledged is because of kings and queens like Victoria. Victoria wasn't perfect. Far from it. Monarchs very rarely are. But I will give her credit for not being a queen who clung to power. Instead, Queen Victoria wisely accepted the progressive march of history, and most importantly, she got out of its way. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Queen Victoria. And as I mean, as I always say now with these new episodes that we're doing since episode 201, barely feel like I scratched the surface with this one, but I do hope you got something out of it all the same. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way as we wrap up the episode nice and quick here. Halfasshistory.net is uh, where you can go to find old episodes. You can contact the show through the form that's there on the website if you've got a topic suggestion. Again, I'd like to thank everyone who's getting in touch. Uh, I'm not looking for specific suggestions at the moment. Uh, thing, I'm looking for big, sprawling, broad topics that I can sort of condense uh, as best I can into one one episode, although we did do a two-parter last week. Uh, so if you've got any ideas for that sort of thing, please let me know. I've got a big, long list of people that I want to do, but ideas for events, um, even maybe trends, uh, broader historical concepts, if you've got ideas for them, please let me know and I'll see what I can do. I do read every single email, even if I can't reply to them all. I mean, I say them all, none of them, in fact. Uh, so I do apologize for that. Just just a volume issue. Um, uh, and if you want to support the show financially, there are a couple of ways you can do this. On the Patreon, of course, patreon.com slash history, you can go and support the show directly. Early access to episodes, uncut episodes, show notes, all sorts of stuff there. Exclusive merch, only available to patrons. Uh, and if you want inclusive merch rather than exclusive merch, you can go to the merch shop. Uh, the link to which you can find on the website, of course. You can go there and buy yourself a t-shirt or, a, I don't know, a... Uh, I don't know. There's so much stuff and I can't think of any of it. A mug. There you go. A laptop case. A face mask. All sorts of different things there. Uh, but that's it. Thank you to the patrons particularly. And thank you, a special thank you goes to all the people who are out there spreading the good word of Half Us History. Slowly but surely, we're watching those numbers tick up. So uh, maybe if you, you know, if you want to support the show in the, in the most basic, easy and free way possible, tell someone about it. Get them listening as well. Look, they don't have to listen. As long as they download, that's all I care about. Got to get those numbers up. Um, but that's it. That's it for this week. Be back next week. Leaving, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Inkism, or maybe it's Inchism. I don't know. Inkism asks, Did so many people want to kill Queen Victoria because they found out her secret? Her secret?